0: I'll leave you to chat to him over lunch about that. Thanks, dude. Clip it? All the microphones, all the time. Thanks, dude. Great. Uh, we're continuing our series, as Bill said, in looking at the letter of 1 Peter. And you've got them on your handouts there. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. Uh, to 7. Let me read that for us. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands... So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, I just want to say that uh, today, some of the things we'll be talking about, might um, raise stuff for you, and if you just need to take some time out at any point, please do, because um, it's a tricky passage, and it raises the question of whether Christianity is good news for marriage. Uh, there's a book, you may have heard of it, called The Poisonwood Bible, and it's named as such because it tells a story about a missionary, Nathan Price. Who takes his wife and daughters to the Congo to share Jesus, but he fails to learn the language well. He, he kind of comes with an air of arrogance and he tells his consistent message to the Congolese in their own language. He says, Tata, Jesus is Bangala. Jesus is precious, is what he's trying to say, but he mispronounces the word and said is heard as saying, Jesus is poison. And I'm aware that pastors like today might be heard like that. That they often get taught with a thoughtlessness, a kind of heavy-handedness, and a, a lack of consideration about the abuses that men in particular have perpetrated against women. Uh, that the gospel, the news of Jesus, gets fused with patriarchy. And for all the talk of good news, Peter's words, like we saw last week, for slaves, and wives this week in particular, can sound like poison. So, to look at this together, I want to ask you to come with me to, sort of, to read it again, to read it slowly, to think carefully about what it is saying and what it isn't saying, that I might show you some of the beauty of marriage as God intends it, while not excusing the way that pastors like this have been arrogantly communicated by others. So, we're going to jump into it and uh, not waste any time. Part one Wives. Peter's been encouraging his Christian recipients of this letter in how to live well amongst a culture that doesn't believe what they believe. Now, that's been the theme running through the last chapter and a half. And it's come to us in a range of apparent paradoxes. Christians are free people, but slaves to God, we saw last week. Their allegiance and devotion are first and foremost to Him. He saved them. But their stance is one of what Peter calls submission. He says this three or four times across chapter 2 and 3. As far as possible, he says, they're to do good to the world, to do good to those people around them, and so seek to commend Jesus, not just with their words, but their actions. So their freedom isn't a license to carry or, or to rebel. Christians aren't to meet resistance and ridicule with the same reaction. But they're to follow Jesus' example that we saw in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. To suffer for the sake of others. Because they know that their standing for God is the same, And their other people need to hear about God. And they know that God will one day bring justice. And having addressed Christians as a whole, then slaves we looked at last week, Peter turns this, in this passage, to encourage wives that they can powerfully influence their husbands through their conduct. Now we need to recognise that there's a cohesion to this whole section we've been working through. If you notice the phrase, in the same way, it comes up twice, uh, verse 1 and verse 7. There's a consistency to what I'm calling the default Christian stance as they seek to live well among people who believe different things so that they can commend Jesus. But it's also fair to say that there's particularities to the groups, and today we're looking at wives especially, and especially those wives who've come to believe Jesus, but their husbands haven't yet. Verse 2. See, wives in those days, wives and other members of the household, adopted the religion of their husbands. They're expected to go along with whatever gods he worshipped. And so for a woman to become a Christian... Her non-participation in the public and private religious practices of her husband owing to the fact that her ultimate allegiance now lies to Jesus, this non-participation would have raised questions. It would have looked disrespectful and divisive in the eyes of the culture and potentially her husband. And Peter's saying, wives, let your behaviour and conduct be such that it doesn't unnecessarily malign. We all know how hard it is to believe someone when there's a a mismatch between their words and their life, when there's a lack of integrity. Because these wives, in these circumstances, are to respond to their husbands with humble respect, so that the husband may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. It's to live with a beauty that comes from a character learned from and enabled by Jesus himself. As a side note, Peter's instructions about beauty in verses 3 to 4 isn't saying that there's something wrong with beauty. But our world tells women that their value primarily lies in their outward appearance. That to be worth something, you have to painstakingly improve and present yourself to those around you. And Peter's saying, no, there's something deeper. There is a a greater worth on offer to be found in Jesus. Your status, women, as belonging to God, as heirs of life, as embodying the character of Jesus. That is beautiful. And so Peter says the dreaded S word. Be submissive to your husbands someone click for me? I'm to give up on that. Uh, this was a hard word to hear last week. And it's harder this week. You may have seen reports like those of Julia Baird's last year. Let me try this again. There we go. On the ABC. Highlighting the misuse and abuse of biblical teaching of wives submitting to husbands How men, claiming to follow Jesus, took God's word. And have used it to abuse and suppress and entrap their wives. And the language that Peter uses here, he's careful, he's precise. The particular verb that he uses, translated as submit in your translations there, actually points back to an earlier instruction in chapter 2, verse 17. Have a look on the slide. To all Christians, Peter says, show proper respect to everyone. The default stance love the family of believers, fear God, honour the Emperor. And Peter's saying wives do this by submitting to their unbelieving husbands. That they're to relate to their culture and relationships as a response to what God has done for them. But we need to be clear that this submission has boundaries. First of all, it's submission not to all men. Twice Peter emphasises it, that it's to her own husband, verses 1 and 5. It's in that established relationship of promise, of covenant, that is marriage. Secondly, submission is not unquestioning obedience. We touched on this last week. God is the only one who deserves that. We're God's slaves, we saw last week. Submission is an invitation, a willingness to participate in the dynamics of a relationship. To respond to the other person with a particular stance. To give yourself to someone for their good, as wives are being asked to do here. And that good is determined by God. He determines what is good. It is not good to offer yourself to someone who does evil against you. That is not good in God's eyes. So Peter is not encouraging women to be submissive to abusive husbands. And thirdly, submission is not a one sided thing. Unfortunately, the church can come across like this is the sum total of the Bible's teaching on marriage sometimes. But it's not it's not like the submission to emperors, right? The emperor is not a, a reciprocal thing, it's not a mutual submission. But here. It makes most sense, this command makes most sense, and is described by both Peter and Paul when it's reciprocated by the husband's considerate, sacrificial love. His desire to do good for his wife. To protect and nurture and care for her and the family. To submit asks wives, it invites them to celebrate the right use of a man's strength and to work with him in his attempts to care and love. And so this makes more sense as we look down to verse 7, of instruction for husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your curse. It's kind of striking in six segments, right? Maybe it's just because guys can't handle much of the time, so we get one verse. Um, I actually think it's probably more because uh, Peter has a special attention to those who aren't in a position of power. He addresses slaves, and he gives more attention to wives and how they need to live. But he adds this here as a special and important marker. In the same way, for a husband to live reshaped by following Jesus they to live as men who are free from their old ways of being and doing. Free from the patterns of masculinity that seek to exploit women. That seeks to see women as worthless and to be used. These instructions that Peter gives and the rest of the Bible cut against currents in the culture then and now. Because friends, the simple fact is, men have power. Socially, politically, sexually, and especially physically. Men in these times, when the people reading Peter's letter, men could have women on the side who gratify themselves sexually. Because wives in Roman culture were basically to make babies and look after the household. Men could beat their wives and have little to no fear of ramifications, socially. And Peter is ensuring that there is nothing in the previous six verses that suggest or can be used by men to force women to stay with an abusive partner. Nothing. And much of this, I think, is rooted in men's physical power. that men are, by and large, typically larger and stronger than women. And with that capacity comes the proclivity. If there's anything the Me Too campaign did, it was to confront dumb men like me with the reality that we lived The blind spots to our privilege, the comfort in comparison to that of my female friends. Even the reaction many men had to it, I think, exposes something about the no friends of mine who posted with this hashtag. And I, I was shocked at not knowing him. it. shone a much needed spotlight on our culture and on myself. A spotlight on the reality that so often women are yeah. disempowered by men who whether in marriages or the church or the culture at large. Uh, novelist Margaret Atwood, fantastic last name if I do say so. Uh, Margaret Atwood writes that when she asked a male friend why men feel threatened by women, he answered, they're afraid women will laugh at them. When she asked her women why they feel women why they feel threatened by men, they said, we're afraid of being killed. The women regularly live in fear. Fear of being haggled, of the sea, of gawked at. The fact that my wife and my female friends feel tense when walking home, even through a well-lit park near our house, hyper-aware of the masculine figures around them. And Peter acknowledges this, he hints at it, I think, in verse 6, exhorting women to do right, to do good, and to not give way to fear, to not fear other humans, because it's a very real reality for them. Have a look again at verse 7. A slightly more literal translation I've given you on the screen there. Is husbands live with women, understanding them as weaker partners and showing them honours as co heirs with you of the grace of life. See, first of all, the word Peter uses as translators wives is a little bit different to the one in verse one. And it suggests, I think, that there's perhaps it's applying it more broadly to women. Not just to your wife. That perhaps is saying that all those in a man's household he ought to treat this way. It's not bounded like the instructions to wives that she submits to her husband alone, not to all men. It's saying the man's to be considerate of women, how he treats them, both in knowledge of his physical power, but also. Especially for those women who know Jesus, seeing them as co-heirs with him of the grace of life. It's a beautiful phrase. A phrase that affirms the equal value and dignity of women and men as God's treasured children. That there's no ground for difference in value in God's kingdom based on gender. Peter says respect and honour women. Give them more respect because they're weaker. And because they share in God's gift of life with you. Peter and God take this so seriously that if the husband treats his wife in a way that is contrary to this, God says, I will not listen to your prayers. And so there's no grounds for the kind of abuse that Julian there rightly exposed. So for the men here, I want you to wake up to the reality. The fact that you have power, whether you realise it or not. Uh, Already, I'm trying to teach my my five-year-old twin boys that their strength is for helping people, not hurting them. That they have a responsibility to use their bodies in a particular way. And if you claim to follow Jesus, and you use that power, that physical strength to threaten or intimidate or to control or violate women... And if you think you can do it based on the Bible, you need to know if God sees what you do, that He will judge you and He's against you. Now, most of you aren't married, and some of you never will be. But this passage calls us to embody a character and a stance of gentleness as men, of strength used lovingly for the good of another. So what does it look like for me to be conscious of women? It's well, One small way I try and do this is when I'm walking through the park at night, I try to be a as possible. Because my wife has told me what goes through her head. If that means I need to cross the road so I'm not kind of shadowing a woman, I'll do that. I also try to use my strength to help and not hurt. Now, one day I was cycling home from uni, just kind of past the back of City University, and I saw this couple on the sidewalk, middle of the afternoon, having an argument. And as I rode past, I saw the man grab her arm and not let her go. And to my shame, I kept riding for about 100 meters before I just had to turn back. And I, I confronted the guy. Was I scared? Yes. But I don't want to live pretending that my fear negates the fear that woman is feeling at that moment. That other people walking past is letting this happen. And so I want to do everything possible to be a safe person for them. Not to patronize them, but to honor them. They are equally worthy of God. He looks at men and women in the same way. See, the Bible calls both men and women to lay aside their rights, their self-determination and their autonomy as they follow Jesus and as they come together in marriage. As they follow Jesus, he shows them both what it is to submit and to love at the same time. He submitted, we read it last week in chapter 2, to the will of God in dying for his bride, his people. And as he did that, he used his power as the king of the universe to love and serve. See, sometimes our response to this teaching, I think, can come from a a place of deficiency. Uh, Women rightly often feel a lack that needs to be filled. But both men and women have this problem, this root problem that Peter points back. Points out back in chapter two, verse eleven, that the desires of the flesh wage war against our souls. That we have this deep problem in our hearts, and to hear submit is scary and dangerous in light of that. But as Christians, we need to find—we uh, find—sorry—a new center to ourselves, a newfound freedom from the drive to self-assert, a freedom which frees us to submit in marriage, in the workplace, and in the community. See, in Jesus, you discover a new way, so that you can rest from grasping at it yourself. Jesus gives women a greater value than the world can ever give them. He is sufficient for her so that she doesn't need to be self-sufficient in response. But similarly for men, Jesus shows us a better way of inhabiting our strength. Instead of the blokey bloke facade that we tend to live by in our culture... That fits of rage are kind of expected. That boys will be boys. That we need to prove ourselves by our machismo. Jesus calls us instead to gentleness. To strength used rightly. To be respectful and considerate. That to be great, you become a servant. And for men too, there is a rest in this that Jesus offers. That he enables a freedom from the patterns I used to live a man who dominees his wife does not understand God or the gospel. And when two people approach marriage from this new place of security in Jesus and freedom from their desires like this, that they find in themselves but more important in Christ, then it becomes like a beautiful, harmonious dance. See, the danger of a Teaching a passage like this is we miss the beauty of the thoughts. We need to have discussions about what I've touched on. We need to talk about the misuse of power. But I don't also miss the beauty of how God enhances marriage. A man and a woman, stunning, beautiful counterparts for each other, sharing in a mutual, faithful, Voluntary sexual and public union. That is the vision of marriage. Men and women who promise faithfulness to each other, forsaking all others, a faithfulness that both is strengthened by their sexual bond and which creates a safe place for that kind of vulnerability with each other. Marriage is the great place of potential for flourishing as man and woman as we give ourselves to one another and trust. And we discover great joy in that. And the beautiful thing is that in all this, we see something of God. And God's love for his people. He is the truly faithful husband who teaches that true greatness uses power in service and love of the beloved. That Jesus laid down his life for his bride, his people bearing our sins in his body on the cross, showing us love and submission together, that he invites us to know him and be known by him. That's what marriage points to. See, marriage is a great gift, but when it fails, sorry, it fails us when we see it as an arena for striving and for competition. When we see it as the means for our ultimate fulfillment, it just can't live up to it. But when it's received as a gift, that we see that marriage points to God and it's enabled best when we find our home, our grounding in Him. When I can operate as a husband out of a place of not deficiency, but sufficiency in Jesus, that I can love my wife with just a dim shade of how Jesus loves her. That only in following Him, following Jesus, can we find true safety, true freedom to be ourselves. See, across these weeks we've seen that Jesus calls his people out of their old way of living. To live as free people. And that freedom is expressed not in separation from the world around them, nor just to live in the social structures they exist in, just staying in their place. No, Jesus calls them to understand they live beyond these structures now. With the truth that our lives find fullness in Jesus who died and rose from us. And if that kind of idea attracts you, if it's intriguing, if you're curious, if you want to know what it is to have the power to live in such a strange way, with a deeper root, a greater joy, a greater contentment, look to Jesus. Get to know him. And as you do, you'll find that while Christians have a mixed record when it comes to marriage, Jesus is really good. Me. and is going to come and lead us in time.
1: We thank you for marriage. We thank you that you have given us the gift of marriage. We ask that you help us, not just as wives, but as everyone, that we can find our worth in you and in Christ, not find it in earthly things, such as our appearance or beauty. We ask for help in understanding tricky passages like this and rebuking those who use it incorrectly. We pray that women submit in the right way to their husbands and men use their power to honour God. Please help us to honour you in all our relationships, whether they be friendships or marriage, as co-heirs of your grace. Lord, we thank you for the many successful years of Credo. We thank you that you have raised up countless servant-hearted leaders who have given their time and hearts to you to bring Credo to where it is today, as well as those who have committed to serve you in the future. We pray that you can encourage them and spur them as well as the rest of Credo, to keep honouring you and spreading your word. Thank you for the wisdom you have given the staff and the leaders of Credo. We ask that you continue to guide them, now and into the future. We pray for all the upcoming plus events, such as the talks on suffering in the coming weeks, that you can use them to draw people into you, and that you can open up people's hearts to hearing your message. We pray for the perfect society talk today, we ask that you can bring many people there and that they can come with us to listen and minds to ask questions. We pray you can help those Christians there to have good conversations with them, non-Christians, and help share Jesus. Finally, we pray that with semester starting to reach its end, that you can sustain us. That we not be overwhelmed, but instead find strength to continue in you, doing all our work for your honour and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.